Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the canal murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are close to 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, DNA ID, Three Men and a Mystery, Zodiac Speaking, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a 20-year-old girl from a small town in Virginia who vanished in 1977, only to be found murdered a month later. Her death shocked the community. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, Please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters, 
And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Sharon Ann Blankenbeckler was born on October 15, 1956, to parents Robert and Edith. Sharon, along with her four siblings, which included three brothers and a sister, grew up in the rural blue-collar town of Chilhalley in the southwest corner of Virginia, located in Smith County. The area is known to many people for its scenic views along the Appalachian Trail. It's also known for its bluegrass music and for being the place where the popular soft drink Mountain Dew was created. In the 1970s, Chilhalley, which means the Valley of Many Deer in Cherokee, had a population of 1,300 residents. The Blankenbeckler home was a conservative one, and the family attended church regularly. Sharon went to Chilhowie High School, where she was involved in the FBLA, or Future Business Leaders of America program. She graduated in 1975. Following graduation, like many young people, Sharon didn't know what direction to take her life in. She could stay in her local community, or perhaps leave the family for more opportunities in a bigger city. Sharon decided to stay close, at least for the time being. Many of the residents knew the quiet but inquisitive girl with long brown hair and blue eyes, and she seemed to always have a smile for people or a kind word. On March 10, 1977, 20-year-old Sharon left her home in Chilhowie, headed to the Kmart in Marion about 11 miles away. She was going to turn in an application for a job there, but she never came home. She was last seen in the Kmart parking lot at around 2.30 p.m. near her red Dodge Colt. No one remembered seeing the 5'4", 108-pound young woman leave the parking lot. Later that night, her car was found there abandoned. It had a flat tire. There was no sign of punctures or damage to the tire, yet somehow it was flat. Sharon's parents became worried pretty quickly. To them, it wasn't like Sharon to just take off without warning. They went to the police early on, and word of her disappearance spread quickly through town. To some, Sharon's disappearance wasn't shocking or urgent. She was an adult, after all. They thought maybe she had run away, shirked her responsibilities, and gone on a road trip, in which case she would return. Maybe she had run off with a friend to explore a bigger city. But the people that knew Sharon closest doubted this. Days of Sharon being missing turned into weeks. As time passed, People in the area between Chilhowie and Marion had to deal with very bad flooding in early April, which ravaged the Appalachian Trail, including the states of Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia as well. From April 2nd to the 5th, some of the region saw some of the heaviest rain and flooding that they had seen in 100 years. While people had previously been concentrating on what happened to Sharon, their minds quickly went elsewhere, focused on the 22 lives that were lost in the area and the massive loss of property, which exceeded over $400 million in the affected states. On April 8, 1977, just shy of a month after Sharon was last seen, her body was found less than half a mile from the top of Walker's Mountain, near Highway 16. This location is northeast of the Kmart Sharon vanished from. Her body had been discarded on its north side, and it was about 15 feet from the road's shoulder, it appeared that Sharon had been thrown or shoved out of a moving car. She was face down, laying head first down the mountainside. Her hands were bound behind her back, 
and a rope was still tied around her neck. She was discovered fully clothed, and at autopsy, there were no signs of sexual assault. The cause of death was strangulation. It was determined that her body had been on the mountain for most of the time she had been missing, about a month. Sharon's murder devastated her family and deeply saddened the town of Chilhowie. Locals began to wonder if the killer was walking amongst them, or might the killer have lived closer to the area of the Kmart where Sharon had gone to for a job. Some people pointed their finger at a local troubled teen who was in the foster care system. Others immediately thought of Lem Tuggle, a man who strangled 17-year-old Shirley Brickey not far from Chilhowie in 1971. But it couldn't have been Tuggle, though, because he was still in prison for Shirley's murder. But people were probably right to suspect him, because he was a very dangerous man. In 1983, just four months after he was paroled for Shirley's murder, he raped and murdered 52-year-old Jesse Mavens. Following Sharon's murder, she was laid to rest in Gross's Creek Baptist Church Cemetery in Chilhowie. Her family did the best they could to move on, but it was never easy. While they hoped for answers and for justice, Sharon's case went cold. Sharon's father, Robert, died in 2001, and her mom, Edith, in 2008, without ever finding out who killed their beloved daughter. There were rumors about a satanic cult wanting to steal Sharon's body and dancing around her grave. This actually predates the satanic panic of the 1980s by a few years. Someone who lived next to the cemetery where Sharon's buried actually called police due to noise from the supposed cult. It's been reported that when police arrived, there were cups of wine scattered around. This could have simply been teens looking for a place to party, perhaps having nothing to do with Sharon's murder or her grave. But nonetheless, the rumors of satanic involvement in Sharon's murder stuck. Sharon's older cousin, Barney Blankenbeckler, also grew up and still lives in Smith County. He was determined to not let Sharon's case be forgotten. He fights to keep Sharon's case open and active. Barney feels that the flat tire in Sharon's car the day she vanished is very suspicious, since it wasn't punctured. It was simply flat enough for Sharon not to be able to drive home. Perhaps someone had let the air out of the tire. In rehashing a lot of the details in Sharon's case, a lot of clues and rumors have been revisited. One of the rumors that lasts today is that an ashtray found at the crime scene contained cigarette butts with lipstick on them, and that the police believed the woman had tied the rope around Sharon's neck. There's no way to know how it was determined whether a man or a woman tied the rope that was around Sharon's neck. But since there was no signs of sexual assault, some felt that a woman could have been involved, leading many to wonder if the motive for her murder wasn't sexual in nature, but maybe revenge or a grudge. But people who knew Sharon can't fathom who would have wanted to harm the friendly and polite 20-year-old. Another story was that one of Sharon's earrings had been found in the car of a local judge after her murder. The other earring was still in her ear when she died. There was also talk that Sharon's hairbrush, the rope she was bound with, and some of Sharon's property was found in another local man's car. But many of these rumors were just that. Rumors. A popular theory was that a married rich man had been having an affair with Sharon and that she had gotten pregnant, but he didn't want to be publicly humiliated or give up his fortune to his wife in a divorce, and that Sharon had to be killed to protect him. But the Commonwealth's attorney for Smith County, Robert L. Asbury, released a statement that whoever this rich man was, he was not under investigation, and that to continue to talk about him in connection with the murder of Sharon Ann Blankenbeckler 
would irreparably harm his reputation. Asbury also warned that slanderous statements were punishable criminally and civilly. According to locals, after this statement, all talk of Sharon's death in her small town stopped. While most of the people of Chilhowie all knew each other and were held in high regards, there were definitely some unsavory people there as well, but there were no clear suspects. In January 1985, 25-year-old Barbara Jean Polly Hunt went missing after being seen walking down Marion, Virginia's Main Street, crying. In 1995, a man from Chilhowie, Barbara's boyfriend, was arrested for a murder, but at trial, there was a hung jury. Technically, this case is still unsolved, and it's unknown if the two murders could be related. And Barbara's case is still listed as a missing persons case, despite the arrest for her murder. Ted Bundy was also briefly considered as a suspect in Sharon's murder, because she wore her long brown hair parted down the middle, just like most of his victims. But it was determined that Ted Bundy was in jail at the time of her murder, so he was quickly ruled out. In 2012, Smith County Captain Chip Schuler stated that the state forensic lab was willing to review the evidence in Sharon's murder with new technology that had emerged in the 35 years since her death. But there's been no news on any new testing or any further updates on Sharon's case in the near decade since that announcement. Today, the town of Chilhowie hasn't forgotten the murder of Sharon Blankenbeckler, despite the passage of over four decades since she was abducted and killed. Although murder investigations are never really closed, they can become inactive. As of 2017, there was an online petition urging investigators in Sharon's case to reopen it. The website gopetition.com featured a petition called Justice for Sharon Blankenbeckler. We don't know what investigators do or don't have after so long in Sharon's case as far as evidence, but perhaps they have DNA from the killer or killers, and that DNA could one day lead back to them. Until that day comes, Sharon's cousin Barney continues to advocate for his cousin's case. He sat down with me to discuss Sharon's life and her tragic death. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, it's hard to believe, but summer's over. Now we're officially in fall. But just because the season's changed, doesn't mean that things that have been weighing on us suddenly disappear. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, I'm happy to tell you there's help. And that help is BetterHelp. BetterHelp online counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from anxiety, depression, and grief, to sleep issues, LGBT matters, and family conflicts, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential, and while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a healthier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Hey listeners, I'm excited to tell you about our sponsor, Every Plate, America's Best Value Meal Kit. 
Every plate makes home cooking easy and affordable, and it's a much cheaper alternative to takeout, but just as delicious. Think of it this way, one meal from every plate is the same price as a cup of coffee. Every plate offers a changing menu of 14 recipes per week, featuring a range of flavors and ingredients, so you'll never get bored. Every plate makes it easy and affordable to cook hearty, delicious, family-pleasing meals. I have to admit, I was skeptical of receiving great-tasting meals delivered right to my door for such a reasonable price and with no hassle. But now, after trying every plate, I'm a believer. Every plate knows exactly how to do just that. With the money I saved with every plate, I brought the kids out for ice cream. Some of my favorite recipes from every plate include the easy chicken fajitas and the smoky oven fried tilapia. I found lots of recipes I loved, and you can too. I'd like to invite listeners of the Murder of My Family to try every plate for themselves and have a special offer just for you. Get started with every plate for just $1.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code 199. That's up to $100 in savings. Once again, try every plate for just $1.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY199. Hi, Barney, and thank you for coming on the Murder of My Family to discuss your cousin Sharon's case with us. Yes, thank you. Sharon's case is unsolved after four and a half decades, and you've been a, a very outspoken advocate, someone that's working to keep the case in the spotlight and help see it solved. How important is that the case be solved, uh, or at least continue to be investigated after so long? Yes, it's been uh, 44 years, and um, uh, Sharon and I, we weren't that close, but we know each other, and we were blood kin. That's what it means so much to me. We were blood kin, and uh, she did go to church. She was a church girl. Her family took her to church all of her life. Uh, she she went to Chihuahua High School, and as far as I know, she was a, a very good girl, and um, the thing about it is, when she was first found, I don't know if they did the right things or not. I don't know if they took fingerprints off the side of the car where the tire was found flat. I don't know if they uh, took any fingerprints off of her evidence that was uh, with her when they found her. Uh, all of that, a lot of stuff that's uh, really a mystery to me. But over all these years, if the, and even after technology has uh, increased and become so much better these days, uh, surely they have some DNA. Surely they have some fingerprints off of her uh, evidence. And, you know, it's just a, a mystery that they, they, and they say they have the evidence. They say they do. Now, many years ago, this man, it was a very reputable man, and I would have trusted him with my life. He told me, and apparently he got it from somebody in the sheriff's department, that they had lost, that there was a, a deputy that had lost the evidence. But it's not to say if he lost part of it, all of it, or if he didn't really lose any of it. But this man had told me I'd trust him with my life. And then when I go and ask him stuff, I've, I've spoke with the sheriff's department several times. I've asked him uh, if they have this, if they have that. Or do they know this or do they know that? Well, they say we can't say anything because it'll hurt the case. Well, then I would say 44 years and it's going to hurt the case. 
And the thing about it, they won't tell the people nothing. They won't tell nobody nothing. If they let the people know something, there is somebody out there that knows something. I believe there's somebody out there that knows who was involved in her murder. So it sounds like you would like fresh eyes and new technology to sort of take a look at this case uh, and see what can be gained after all this time, maybe things they missed back early on. Yeah, that's true. Uh, two or three years ago, we started a petition, and there was several people signed that petition to try to get the, the sheriff's department to uh, be, do some more extensive investigation into the case. And so then when I took the petition to the sheriff, his words were, we don't do petitions. So basically what he was saying, that we're not going to honor the people that signed this petition. You know, that's what he said. So I don't understand uh, why he didn't say, well, we will look more into it or we'll do more about it or something like that. And they do say, well, yeah, we want to solve it. We want to solve it. Sure they do. Sure they do. But I honestly believe, I honestly believe they're at a dead end. I believe they're actually at a dead end. Well, I I think you hit the nail right on the head that, you know, it's 45 years later. What's it going to hurt to to try and look at things differently or release some information they haven't released before? And and we're definitely going to talk about all of that information. Um, I I did want to ask you, I know you mentioned that you weren't uh, very close with Sharon, but obviously she was your cousin, so... Uh, you knew her somewhat. Can you tell us a little bit about her? What time? What type of person she was? Well, the best I could say about her, she was a peaceful person. She was um, a person that probably wouldn't cause any trouble. Um, and she was—I uh, don't know for sure—but she was twenty years old. She was probably looking for somebody, you know, to 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 uh, love and to be loved. And uh, that's what happens when you get 20 most of the time. But uh, I do know she was a church girl, and uh, she had been in church all of her life. And that means a lot to a person. I mean, when they get out into the world, you know, trying to go it on their own. But she was a a nice-looking girl. And when she died, she was only 20 years old. Obviously, she was so young and had her whole life ahead of her. Do you know what plan she had for herself? Did she plan on going to school or starting a career? Uh, I really don't know, uh, except she had worked at uh, another place, and maybe it was Pizza Hut, I'm not sure. But uh, that day she had went to Kmart and put in an application. So she was probably one that was wanting to get a job and work, you know, and and make, make a living for herself. That leads right into the next part. So... We know that she left her home in the town, Chilhowie, and she was going to the Kmart in Marion, which is, I think, a distance of 10 miles. Can you tell us a little bit about this area back in 77, those two towns and the area around there? Was it relatively safe? Was there any kind of crime, uh, high crime or anything? Well, as far as I can say, is um, there wasn't really any major crime over the years. Um, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, fights and maybe people um, doing things to other people or something like that, but nothing major like this. This was a, a major crime in that area at the time. 
and a lot of people couldn't believe it. The actually the um, the uh, police couldn't believe it. They they said, well, maybe she run off with somebody, or maybe she run away, or something like that. And it was like about I think 28 days later that they found her dead. But uh, basically, a quiet area. Yeah, so not uh, you know not a type of area where they're used to a lot of crime, and it sounds like the residents there were pretty uh, shocked by hearing about her going missing. Oh yeah, and there has been some other murders there, but uh, I believe they was after years after this one. Okay, and um, was there anything going on as far as you know in her life? It sounds like she was a pretty uh, down to earth person. She didn't get in trouble. She went to church regularly. Uh, nothing that would suggest that she's involved with any people that are going to put her in harm's way. No. I, I... I wouldn't know anything about that. It's definitely been reported that witnesses did see Sharon in that Kmart parking lot. So we know she made it to there to apply for the job. Do you know if, if she made it inside and applied for the job and the witnesses saw her afterwards or uh, after she came out? Or do you know if they saw her when she arrived? Uh, from my understanding, she did make it inside. And then when she come back out, she had a flat tire. Okay. So, and, and I know that the, the tire is something we're, we're going to talk a little bit too. Um, it was found in that parking lot with a flat. Sharon, she wasn't found any place close to it. And we should point out too for listeners that there was no sign, according to police, that the tire was damaged. Is that correct? Like not someone had punctured it on purpose or anything like that? Well, that's... Uh... That's the way it appeared to be. Um, the vowel, the vowel core, uh, what I understand, had been uh, pressed in with a little of an object, and uh, they said it was a golf tee, and uh, said it had been pressed in and held in with that, and that would let the air out of the tar. Yes. Yeah, so, and and I think you know, obviously, if, if you want to have someone uh, stranded uh, and maybe keep them in a spot and you want to you know disable their car by damaging a tire you could obviously puncture it with a knife or something like that but you could also simply let the air out with a tool uh, just holding that little valve down and letting the air out and until it's flat uh, and that's what it appears to have happened in this case it's true and there was a service station right across the road from uh, Kmart on the other side of the road that you know she could have walked down there and got some help uh, so you would maybe think somebody came by that she knowed or something, but I, I couldn't say for sure. I'm not sure what time of day it was, but I believe it was still uh, day, daylight. And so it's it's safe to say that people could have seen her. If she needed help, she could have went to a nearby business, like you mentioned, and, and sought out help if she if she wanted to. Oh, yes. Now, you bring up a good point. Maybe someone came along and offered her a ride, and, and then something happened. Was she the type of person, as far as you know, that would go with a stranger? Or um, do you think she would only go with someone that she trusted or knew? I don't believe she would have went with a stranger. Um, that's what I, my belief. I don't believe she would have went with somebody that she absolutely did not know. She might have went with somebody that she vaguely knowed and uh, apparently maybe trusted them. Uh, she would definitely probably went with somebody that she knowed real well. She was still living with her parents. 
Do you know how and when they realized that something was wrong and she was missing? How fast did that happen? It wasn't very long, that's for sure. So they didn't wait, you know, days or weeks or anything. They they seemed to, to catch on early that something wasn't right. You know, for a month after she went missing, after this trip to Kmart, there was no sign of your cousin. And then just four weeks after she went missing, her body was found. Do you know who found her remains and, and how they found her? This man that I knew, he had a logging business. And uh, he was going across the mountain down by where she was. And uh, this other fellow that was riding with him in the logging truck, after they got over their ways over on where they was going, I, he said he apparently said that he thought he saw a body. And from what I understand, him and not the not the truck driver, but him and another feller went back over there later, you know. And so they found the body, which I know the man's name and everything, but I wouldn't want to say it right now. Sure, sure, I understand that. Family, Sharon's family was devastated to find out that she was uh, dead, and and more shockingly, wasn't just dead, but someone had murdered her. Um, but also the community, I'm sure, was pretty shaken by this. What was the reaction when it was uh, found out that she had been murdered? Well, they had to believe it because it was true, but it was actually unbelievable if you just hear it. You know, I mean, how could something like this happen, you know, here in Smith County in Marion, Virginia, you know? But uh, I was working the day they found her, and um, her brother... He was working at the same facility I was, and uh, they called him to him and her daddy went over and, uh, you know, looked at her. And I assume that had to be very tough on, on them. Oh, yeah. Actually, what I was told that um, her brother said, yeah, that's her, but uh, her daddy didn't want to say it was her. Yeah. Of course, he wouldn't, you know. Because that meant accepting that his, his daughter was, was dead. Yes, right. When it came out that she was murdered, that her her body had been found, did anyone, as far as you know, have any ideas or theories about who did it or why they did it? Was there anyone that they thought might have uh, maybe she had an issue with or uh, had any kind of run-ins with? Well, no direct uh, people, but there was a lot of stories, crazy stories and different things that was told and None of them was ever proved to be true, but, uh, you know, just different stuff, you know, about what a, a woman might have been doing before and or what she might have been involved in or all this different stuff. But uh, none of it was ever proven. Sure. It's basically rumor mill stuff going around and no one really knows anyone, but they're just sort of spitting out ideas and things that they have no way of knowing are true. And the police department did have one suspect at that time. And they said, well, they, we understand they searched his car and all that stuff and everything, but they never did get nothing concrete on him. And then uh, over the years, uh, besides him, there's uh, been several different suspects. But uh, with the different suspects, I can't understand if they've, I hope they've took, they said they have collected DNA now and said they do have it. 
that's what they've, you know, presented to me that they have it. And uh, if they have all this stuff, and they, I just wonder if they've tested it on each one of the different suspects. Sure. You know, compare and, and rule them out one by one. Hey, everyone. I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Gainful. Right now, I think a lot of us are trying to get healthy, and there's nothing more personal than your health. So when it comes to finding the right nutrition supplements to meet your fitness goals, you need a personalized approach. Thankfully, now there's Gainful, the personalized nutrition system that's formulated for your body and goals. Gainful gives you peace of mind that your protein, hydration, and pre-workout supplements contain the finest ingredients, specifically for you. You can get started by taking the 5-Minute Gainful Quiz. Gainful considers your dietary needs, goals, and unique physiology to personalize your formula. Gainful delivers your supplements with no shipping charge every month, and you can cancel any time or adapt your plan as needed. All Gainful products are formulated by their on-staff registered dietitians and are backed by pro-level exercise science. On their science advisory board, and every Gainful customer gets complimentary one-on-one access to their registered dietitian, available anytime to answer your questions. And Gainful's rigorous quality control process ensures that your supplements only have clean ingredients that you can pronounce, along with zero artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners. I tried the strawberry lemonade hydration powder and the watermelon pre-workout, and they're both great. My goal was to stay hydrated and energized during my workout and after, and Gainful did the trick. Best of all, you can tailor the flavor of your proteins to suit your taste buds with a variety of delicious flavors like rich chocolate, Madagascar vanilla, and strawberry cream, just to name a few. Start your personalized fitness journey today with Gainful. To get $20 off your personalized supplements, go to Gainful.com slash murder. That's Gainful.com slash murder, and you'll get $20 off. Gainful, personalized nutrition made for your taste. As you sort of just touched on, there were some early suspects, nothing uh, solid, no arrest. But then in, in 1979, a man named David Allen Rowe confessed uh, to Sharon's murder. When you heard that, when, when that came out, did your family you know, feel that, hey, we finally got uh, someone here that's uh, going to give us some answers? Yeah, we did at first until the story ended up. I think it was Texas, I'm not sure, that they went out and got him. And they brought him back. And from where the story went, after investigation and everything, they found out he wasn't even in the area when she was killed. And the thing about it that it appeared to see he was from the, he was from the, the area, the Chihuahua area, and it appeared that he just wanted to get back home. And he had figured out that was a way he could get back out here. To have the cops pick him up and take him by confessing to a, a murder that he didn't commit. Well, they thought they just, they did. They went out there and, and got him and brought him back. That was, uh, I think that was Billy Dolinger was the sheriff then. Wow. Was that a, a big letdown when it came out that this uh, confession was bogus and, and he had nothing to do with it? Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, it's sort of a botched situation. You know, something that's botched and made you up and then brought you down. Sort of uh, get your hopes up on one hand because it, and maybe there's uh, some news coming, but then all of a sudden you find out there's nothing to it and you're back to back to the drawing board. Yeah, right. Now... Decades went by. There were no arrests in Sharon's case. It went cold, but that didn't stop you. I know you've stayed positive. You reached out to various people who you thought could help with the case. And as we talked about, you encourage law enforcement to do work with new technology, DNA, that kind of thing. Um, 
Tell us some more about that stuff you've done over the the past uh, to to try and get more focus on the case and try and get some fresh eyes looking at it. Okay. Um, well, it don't ever leave your mind. You know, it's your blood kin. If you really care, it don't ever leave your mind. And I've never understood why the family hadn't pressed more on it. And her mom and dad didn't press more on it, but, um, they was one of them told me they was afraid. They was afraid to do it. So I don't know why. I don't guess they've ever found out why they was afraid. But anyway, um, I've talked to people all the time about it. I mean, it hadn't just come up all of a sudden. Over the years, I've talked to different people about it, and different people said different things, and people said that the, the original suspect was the one that done it, and, and then others said, well, there's uh, some other said there was more than one had done it and, you know, just different, different things that people tell you and you just have to try to look into it. And, and then when you talk to the sheriff's department, you, you tell him these people that's been suspected, but then nothing ever comes out of it, you know, because either they've already checked them out or else they don't check them out. And, um, I've always been concerned about it. I mean, I mean, if it was my sister, I'd be into it a lot stronger than I am as a cousin. If it was my daughter, you better believe I'd be in it a lot stronger. They'd hate me because I'd be in it so much, they'd never want to see my face. I mean, it's not right that a family should just let it go. Sure, ever who ever who done it, they'll be punished in the hereafter. But... The Bible says to obey the law of the land, and we're to go by it, and we're to be punished by it if we if we break it. Yeah. So, you know, that's the way I feel about it. And, I mean, there's been so much said about it that you don't really know what to believe. You just uh, look into it yourself, and you try to find out something that's positive. Yeah, and, and I, I, I know your efforts from the sound of it. You just haven't wanted to give up on this, and I, I totally understand uh, maybe her parents, it was just too painful to keep bringing up. But I totally understand your point of view that you would just not let this go and and you want to see whoever did this held accountable. Oh, yeah, I'd sure like to know before I die. I'm getting older and, you know, I may have a few more years and I may not. But i sure like to know before I leave out of here. I think it's only natural to want to know that and figure out who did this. Yeah, and you know, her car, they turned that back over to uh, her daddy, and he sold it. But I've always wondered, you know, when a person squats down at that tar to uh, remove the valve cap or do something with the tar, most of the time they're going to put their hand up on the side of that car to stabilize themselves. I've always wondered, if, of course, if they didn't, it's too late now. But I always wondered if they took any fingerprints off the side of that car. Yeah, and that's the the tough thing about these older cases. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to know what exactly was done back then, what wasn't done. You would hope they would do that. But I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. It's too late now if they didn't do it because, you know, we're we're almost 50 years later at this point. Uh, and that car obviously is probably long gone. So um, if they did miss uh, fingerprinting it, then, you know, they missed out on some potential clues. 
Yeah, I think one of those detectives should really get interested in it and really want to get into it. And the place they should start is back over there where somebody's seen her and turned it in. The guy that's seen her, I think that's where they should start right there. And just go back to square one, basically, and start investigating it all over again with the the witnesses and right. everything else. Yeah. yeah, they really can't go back to the car because it's gone, and you know, and unless they could get a get some kind of a word out that would let people know they could they would they would trust them and they wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, put take their uh, uh, investigation out on them. A lot of people's afraid. If they tell something, then the, the sheriff's department or whoever investigates is going to jump on them. But if they could really trust the sheriff's department, somebody that knowed something and would come in there and, and call them or just tell them, you know. But people just people don't trust anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I, I wonder if, too, maybe when this crime first happened, Maybe someone had some information, but they were afraid to come forward, as you mentioned. But now that it's, you know, 44 years later, maybe they're not afraid to come forward. They can haven't done so for whatever reason. So maybe we can uh, encourage anyone out there listening, if they have information, to to, to do the right thing and just share it with the, the police. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not an authority or anything like that, but... I'm on Facebook. If somebody wanted to go on Facebook and find me and message me and tell me something, you know, I, I wouldn't divulge their name or anything like that. I'd just like to know. I'd like to know. And uh, I have got a friend in Tennessee that's been uh, real good about helping out with it. And, uh, I mean, she was wonderful. She investigated in it, I mean, just a couple years ago. She investigated in it, and she found out stuff that, that different stuff, you know, all kinds of things. She found out, and she's the one that helped us to get up that petition. But uh, you know, I'm glad to have somebody that is interested. It's not even uh, a blood kin or anything to to help me out. Sure, because it's uh, important to get all the help you can when you're trying to solve a mystery of some, something that happened that long ago to have people that are willing to help spread the word and investigate it. Um, Just do you have a personal theory about what happened to her about who did it? Maybe my theory is that there was more than one because they said she was the way she was tied. uh, Unless it knocked her out. I don't believe that more than one could have, could have tied her like that. And, um, since she was found over on the other side of Walker's Mountain, I believe that she they took her out there and they went up into the go up into the park. Went up into the park and they went back in there somewhere. They may have took her to a cabin or something for some reason. And uh, it might have been a reason that they were trying to uh, get her not to tell something, or uh, might have been a reason that. Uh, they wanted to know her better, and she didn't care nothing about them, or uh, you know, something like that. Somebody that uh, was obsessed with her, or something. I don't know. I don't know, but um, I believe my theory. They took her back in there, and then uh, when whatever didn't work out right for them, I believe they tied her up like that. 
And then my theory is that they took her over and dumped her over there on the other side of the mountain. Yeah, so she couldn't um, identify them and, and report them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's my, that's just my theory. Sure. You know, that's could be far-fetched. You know, I don't know. Well, you bring up an interesting point, and, and this is something I'll ask you about since you know the area. Um, the the place where her body was found, is that a place that's hard to get to? Would most people that weren't from around there know that area was there? Well, a lot of people know it was there. Uh, it was uh, back then, there was no guardrail there, and it was a little uh, garbage. People come out and they'd dump their garbage, which was illegal, but they'd dump their garbage there. You know, so someone from the area that maybe had been there before might know that spot was there as opposed to oh, a stranger yeah. that wasn't from the area uh, might not ever know that was there. Yeah, a lot of people know it was there. I mean, it wasn't something you didn't you couldn't see I mean, You could see it and know it was a little garbage dump place where they throw their stuff out, you know. And uh, that could be a clue that maybe whoever did this, whoever uh, took her life, was from that area and knew that spot was there. So maybe it was someone local to the area, uh, and which I assume had to be a scary thought for you and everyone else in, in the area, that the person that did this might be walking amongst you and might be someone that you're working with or, or you see in the store that's uh, cashing out at the cash register. Well, another thing I was thinking that um, where they dumped her at, that would have been going down the mountain on their left. And um, I don't know if they had pulled over or that way or not. They may have went on down the mountain and then turned around and come back up and then say they could pull right in at it, you know, and then dump her out there and then go on. But, you know, that's just another theory. Hopefully the, the, the police are reconsidering all these different things. And maybe, like you said, they'll take a fresh look and talk to witnesses again. The problem is after, you know, 44 years, witnesses are getting older. They may be dying off. So if they're going to do something with this case, hopefully they do it soon before there's no one left to talk to. Yeah. It's 2021. It's, it's 44 years after the fact. Um, we do see old cases getting solved in the news. Are you still hopeful and, and staying positive uh, that this case might be solved one day? Yes, I am. Yeah, I just, something's got to pop up. Somebody's got to say something. Something's got to happen uh, uh, somehow or another. I don't know how, but it can happen. And And if one of those detectives will really take a real strong interest in it, I mean, a strong interest. I don't mean just saying, oh, I want to solve it. I want it to be solved. I want them to really get involved in it and and, and find out something. You know, there's, um, like I said, there's more than, there's more than one suspect. And if they would just go back, the ones that's still alive, there was, there was three suspects, and two of them's dead, but they could go back and, um, you know, talk to each one of them. I don't think there's anything wrong with talking to them if they would go and do it. Sure. You know? Sure. And you, you never know what and they're going to find. that original suspect, 
Yeah, that original suspect, he don't live here anymore. He lives in another state. Huh. So I don't know. Yeah, hopefully they go back and, and do all those uh, steps and retrace everything and recheck everything out. And you never know if they have evidence, they have DNA that's collected and it's been preserved. Maybe they can help uh, rule people out or identify the right person. And before long, maybe you'll get the, the person that did this and, and her family can get some kind of just. Yeah, you'd think uh, if the person's still alive that did it, or person or persons, whatever, that, man, looked like their conscience would bother them or something. They would really start feeling guilty. Maybe they want to get it off their, get it off their conscience or something. But I don't know. They must be pretty cold whoever, if they're still alive. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, it's sad, but there's people like that in the world that are that cold and that uh, uh, callous that they would just not ever say anything and not uh, not get it off their conscience. So hopefully police can, uh, if they're not willing to talk, police will find them on their own. Uh, I, I want to thank you for, for helping us to understand uh, Sharon's case uh, better, and I'm hoping for your sake and your family's sake, Sharon's family, uh, that you will find out who did this and you will get some justice, but we'll do our part to help spread the word and uh, let people know that the case is still unsolved. It's good. Appreciate you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast called Crime and Crime Again. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hi, I'm Chelsea, the host of Crime and Crime Again. On my podcast, I cover lesser-known true crime cases. I tell the stories that you may not have heard before. Join me in bringing light to the stories of the missing and murdered, and being a voice when their own has been silenced. You can find Crime and Crime again anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts.